This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Welcome to a special episode of Radio Astronomy, listeners. Since Yuri Gagarin first blasted off into space in 1961, humanity has been pushing the limits of how far and how long we can stay away from the safety of our own planet. One of the people that's been helping with that endeavour is today's guest, Libby Jackson. For over a decade, Libby has been working at the forefront of human spaceflight, including spending seven years at the European Space Agency's Mission Control Centre for the International Space Station. You might also recognise her from various television shows such as Stargazing Live and Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? And she's also written two books on the subject, including her latest one, Space Explorers, which is out now. So, Libby, tell us a bit about what is it that you actually do with controlling the International Space Station? So I I used to work in ESA's Mission Control Centre for the Columbus module. And the Columbus module is Europe's part of the International Space Station. So the International Space Station is this wonderful, amazing scientific laboratory up in space that's had astronauts and cosmonauts on it for nearly 20 years now, carrying out fantastic science. And the Columbus module is Europe's little science lab there. So I was sitting in Mission Control. We were responsible for for day-to-day operations it's it's really just like you see in the movies. I, when people used to ask me, what do I do? I said, have you seen Apollo 13? I said, and it's just like that. It's less glamorous because we weren't sending people all the way to the moon, um, but we still had problems. We still had things to overcome. What we had to do was keep the, the science experiments running, look after the crew. When problems came up, we'd have to um, work out what was what. And me as flight director, I was in charge of that team. But I always say we because it really is a team. There's lots of people there and each have their own role and their own specialities. And I just bit like a conductor at the, the front of an orchestra, just waving my arms and, and moving everybody in, in the right direction and, and bringing everything together and, and getting it all done. Have you always had an interest in space exploration? Always, always. Ever since I was little, I can't remember not. Um when I was young, space fascinated me. I'd look up at the stars. Um, I remember trying to spot meteors in the middle of southeast London out a window, probably never saw anything. Um, but it was particularly astronauts and the stories of Apollo, but but all those early days in space exploration that really captivated me, um, working in mission control, that the the astronauts and the journeys to the moon. And I would devour all of those stories. And and that's what I've done in this book. It, it, it's share the stories, not just of, of history and, and those early days, but but what happens now in, in a form and in a way that 
I wish I had had when I was, was 10 or 11. Um, it, it's, it's all about the fascinating things, um, the amazing stuff that happens in space, um, yeah, for, for young people to read. And as you said, the book is centred around stories and the stories of space exploration. Were there any ones in particular that you remember hearing and that's what made you, inspired you? To, to want to write this book? Oh, the, the stories I've always known growing up um, and, and were fascinated by were, were things like um, the, the, the moon landing. So I, I, I've picked out here from Apollo 11 that there was so much of it, but the bit I've really picked out um, was, was that descent down to the surface um, where you had Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in this teeny, tiny, little delicate module on their own, trying to do this thing that no one else has ever done. Uh, and, and then Neil Armstrong looks out the window and goes, oh, that's not where I thought it was going to land. And, you know, cool as a cucumber, just takes manual control, flies over this big boulder field and lands down in the middle of the moon with, with you know, seconds, seconds of fuel remaining. Um, and, and just that little bit of drama, I I think is brilliant and fascinating. And, and so many people might just know now we've been celebrating uh, the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 recently. But what really happened there, um, to me, still blows my mind. And, and then I carry on a little bit and, and get into something that I don't think I knew when I was younger, um, which was in order to get off the moon again, they had to fire their engine and, and get up. Um, and the button that they needed to press to essentially light the engines to make that happen had broken. <laughs> And, and, you know, after all this, you know, they, they, they've made it there. They, they, they've landed. They've gone out. They've done the space. Well, they've put the suits on. Are they going to get home? And it was all because they shoved a felt-tip pen in, in the circuit breaker and allowed them to get back off. So there's, there's so much like that it's from Apollo 11. Um, but there were things in there I, I never knew growing up as well. Mm. I, I do always like that when you hear about using an everyday object to fix something. Like I think it was the Apollo 15 rover where one of the fenders fell off. So yep. they just sellotaped it back on with duct tape. <laughs> and were there any more of those sort of unusual stories, the lesser known stories that you really wanted to highlight and bring out? One, one of them that I didn't know when I was growing up um, and I've only discovered recently um, uh, was, was, was a tale that brought together Sally Ride and Svetlana Sabitskaya. So Sally Ride was the, the first US woman in space, but of course she wasn't the first woman in space. That was Valentina Tereshkova. But then even Sally was beaten to space, you could say, because, because the Soviet Union wanted to, to trump the American um, achievements and Svetlana Sabitskaya flew. So these two women both uh, were selected and, and, and assigned to their missions and had to go through a whole swirl of media attention that was focused not on the fact that they were humans that were being sent into space to do a really challenging mission, which was what they were asking all the men, but about the fact that they were female and how were they going to do their hair and would they cry in space and, and, and just questions that nobody was asking the men. Um, and, and they say the two of them had to, to go through all of this. Um, and they met once in their lives. I didn't know this. And the story of how they met is wonderful. And, I, and I've told it in the book because it's something out of a spy movie, really. What happened was that um, Sally, after her, her flight, was um, at the International Astronomical Congress. Big, still happens today, big space congress, where, space conference where lots of people get together. 
But the US and the Soviet Union were um, not, there was diplomatic tensions because there had been a plane that had shot down that the US were blaming Russian for and, and there'd been some Americans very sadly lost their lives. And so Sally was under strict instructions not to talk to anyone from the Soviet Union. And then what happened was she, she was at this conference, mingling in this room. Someone tapped her on the shoulder. She turned around and saw Svetlana Savitskaya there. And she said, oh, and remembering her orders, she said, no, oh, God, I can't go. It's a, a world on her feet and said, made her excuses and disappeared off into the crowd. But but afterwards, kind of, she, she thought to herself, oh, I, that was really rude. And I'd really love to talk to Svetlana. And, and these two women were the only two women really in the world who had lived through the same thing, who could understand each other. And so she mentioned this um, to her Hungarian translator. And he said, leave it with me, um, with a wink and a nod. And then later that evening, um, Sally, her translator, said to her, hey, you should come to a party at my house. And she, she, she went back and, and, and she spoke to, to her husband, who, who she travelled with. And, oh, should I go? Should I not go? I said, all right, I'm going to go. Um, and this black car picked her up and whizzed her through the back streets of, of Budapest and it was raining and, and, and she says it was like a spy novel or something. Um, she didn't know what she was going on. And, and, what ha- and then they, they got to this door and she was sort of ushered into it. She walked up and she still her head's going, what am I doing? What am I doing? Is this a big trap? Um, and she got up to the top and, and found herself in a flat that looked just like people, things she knew from home. Um, it was it was the Hungarian astronauts' um, home, um, and he had pictures on the wall of rocket launches and knickknacks from space. And then a little while later, Svetlana turned up, and they had this amazing evening together. And it was the only time um, in their whole lives that the two of them met. And uh, that story I had never never known before, and 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 finding it out was wonderful for me. And then sharing it in the book um, for other people to to, to read and to discover. Um, it's given me such joy, really. Mm. Uh, and you mentioned there Valentina Tereshkova. Um, she was the first woman to fly in space it, back in 1963. However, Sally Ride and Svetlana didn't fly until 20 years later in the 1980s. Um, space flight's always been traditionally a bit of a boys' club. Do you think that is changing? Um, Absolutely, it, it, it's changing. And we're seeing now... Um, the recent astronaut selections, the European Space Agency, we're expecting one later this year. We're seeing astronaut selections being gender balanced and diverse, which is absolutely what they should be. But it's, it's taken years to change because there's a whole pipeline of people and, and we've got to encourage the world, actually, to be accepting of everybody doing the things that they want. You still today see marketing, pink and blue Lego sets now. You've got pink sets and blue sets. And you walk into shops and the boys' clothes under a boys' sign are the ones with with all the rockets and the dinosaurs on and the girls' ones have all got fairies and unicorns and so on. And and we're almost teaching our younger generation at the minute that it's it's even worse and and we've got to change that and and that's why it's taken so long even now to get to um gender balanced astronaut selections but we're seeing more and more but it was a real challenge when I wrote the book because it was a it's a history of human exploration and it goes right back from the the 60s all the way through to today and you want to I I want to show that space is something for everybody and absolutely it is but when you're picking stories from the past it it was a 
I want to say it was a challenge, but it was it was a privilege to to pull out the stories of that. But you, you really, I had, it was a real sort of discussion and a balance between telling the history as it was, and how do you portray that as something that is welcoming to everyone. And I hope we found the balance that's right in the book. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the further through history you get, the more stories there are to share and tell, um, and the the forward looking and where we are today. Absolutely. You know, it, it, it's a thriving industry. It is getting more diverse. There is absolutely more we can do, but it is getting better. And for me, for young people, one of the big messages is this is something for you. And if you want to come and get involved in the industry, do. Um, when I was growing up, um, it, it was, it was, you know, it, it was tough at times as a, as a, as a girl enjoying science and, and physics and you know I went to a, I did a physics degree and I was with sort of about 10 of us in a class of 200 and one of the things though that I have found through through my life and through my career is that I haven't generally noticed that it's been a big thing and and that's a sign of change and challenge and yet I was sort of you, Younger people can be told there are so many barriers and I would hate to feel that people are put off because there are barriers. And so it, it's a real balance. But the basic message is, yeah, come do the things you enjoy. And, and I really hope that this book, um, yeah, encourages people to, to see that there are lots of different things you can do in space and it's something for them. And looking forward to the future at the moment, we've got in the US, they are, NASA are planning on staging their Artemis mission which will aim to put the first woman on the moon. Um, I love the naming of that, by the way. Um, Artemis, who's the sister of Apollo. Brilliant. Um, I thought that was a genius name. Uh, but we, we have these, these big space exploration targets coming up in the future. Um, what are the ones that particularly are of interest to you and that you can't wait to see? I, I cannot wait to see humans on the moon. It, the, when I was growing up, the, these stories that, that capture me that, that I've told in the book, they felt like the distant past to me. And, and I, was a, I was a child in the 80s and, and you read these and it felt so long ago. And actually now I, I look back and I go, goodness me, the, the last Apollo moon landing was 72. The last Apollo flight was 75. It was, it was a blink of an eye. Now I'm a grown up and I'm, I'm an adult and I see that. But so I've never seen humans on the moon and, and I can't wait to see that. And it really excites me that there's going to be a whole new generation of people much younger than me who, who see that and see the inspiration. And we're going to get to go back with, you know, 21st century technology and cameras and sound recording. And you, you, it's going to blow our minds because there is such iconic photography and imagery from their times in history. I did, one of the stories in the book is, is all about that beautiful Apollo 8 Earthrise photograph and, and how it was taken. It, it mentions that in there. Uh, Apollo 8 was a fantastic mission. And, and that's brilliant. And, and it really excites me to think, what are we going to see and what are we going to learn from the science when we go back again in, in the coming years? And there'll be a whole new chapter of stories and a whole new era in, in exploration. And yeah, oh, I'm, I, I cannot, I, I pinch myself to think, ah, I'm going to see all of that. It is happening. That really is coming in the next few years. One of the, the other big changes that we've got coming up on the horizon is the rise of private space flight. Um, so as we're recording this, it's a couple of weeks after Rob Benkin and Dog Hurley uh, returned from the International Space Station on a Crew Dragon. We've got 
Virgin Galactic, which are, are who are talking about sending people into space finally. Um, do you think that private spaceflight is on the verge of finally making its mark? Yeah, definitely. Private spaceflight is is there and coming, and it already has made its mark from a non-human perspective. What SpaceX have done, um, disrupting that market, the um, cargo that they've been sending to and from the International Space Station, but the Cygnus capsules as well, um, it's really been there and it really is shifting the boundaries that are happening in low Earth orbit. At the minute you can buy a ticket to space, you need incredibly deep pockets. And, and I don't pretend <laughs> that it's, it, it's something for the masses yet. But all innovations and everything have to start somewhere. And, and, and you go back in history and, and you look at aeroplane travel. And, and that started out as, as government funded and the very rich people were doing it. And now, in normal times, and I look forward to it being the case again, you know, everybody is, is able to buy, buy a ticket somewhere you know and and it's it's it, it's savable and it's 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 yeah it, it, it's everyday travel and i think it's going to be a long time before we see space being everyday travel for people but i i really i mean it when i i say to young people now i think if you start saving you could take yourself to space and when i was young i would look at at Concord, and it flew overhead over my house every night at five o'clock um, and would land us out. I lived in southeast London. And I, I dreamed that one day I'd get a job and I'd save my money and I'd buy a trip on Concord. And wouldn't that be an amazing thing to do? And then sadly, it, you know, there, there were the accidents and, and it retired when I was in my early 20s. And that era of private travel is coming. And, and now any of us, I think, if we actually start saving, could choose to spend a, a significant chunk of money, but a chunk of money that is affordable if you really save for it, to go and have that experience of going into space. And what that's going to do um, and allow us to do, it's going to be absolutely vital for governments if they're going to um, return to the moon and go on to Mars. Governments can't afford to do everything. And the International Space Station is a real key part of what happens um, with space exploration, with governments. You, you need somewhere to test technology. You need somewhere to, to, to be your test bench to, to live and work in space. And, uh, yeah, the, the private government enterprises, that's going to be how we'll, we'll see onto moon and maybe one day onto Mars. The International Space Station, as you said, has always been a, a really important place to, to test the technologies and also the sort of systems and, you know, logistics of operating in space. Uh, do you think that it's been serving its purpose or is there still some stuff that we need to work out? <laughs> oh, the International Space Station has served its purpose and, and tenfold in so many different ways. It has taught us how to live and work in space, 20 years of continuous operation. It's brought international cooperation to the forefront. You've got America, Russia, Europe, Japan, Canada, all working together. Um, and even in the past when, and perhaps now, when you see America and Russia sort of really having issues, the, the little world of space and the International Space Station tends to get ring-fenced away and just left to its own devices because these challenges are so big that you couldn't do them without international collaboration. And, and, and it's done that. It's still discovering science. There's, there's still a lot more science to do. And it's still always going to play a key place that that, that low Earth orbit, whether it's the International Space Station or what comes next um, in the future. But it's absolutely, it's first and foremost an international endeavour. And, and it was another thing in the book. I, I really 
wanted to show how international this world is, that even if it's it's grown up from Russia, sorry, Soviet Union and America competing in, in this space race, it, it's now become a much more international place with, with people from all around the world getting involved. And it's, it's one of the lovely things about space. So do you think uh, from your experience of actually being on the ground whilst working with the International Space Station, is it pretty much politics free when you're actually working there on the ground or is there still some international rivalry? The crew in space and the teams day to day on the ground, they are all focused on the same thing, which is the mission, keeping the crew safe keeping the spacecraft flying and it was glorious in my days in mission control that I, I would talk to people from Japan or from Russia from America and, and they were all there and we were all part of the same team it is a political thing I, I, I've since worked in um, the, the political arena of it and undoubtedly behind the scenes that there, there, there is like any big program there's politics and the, there's negotiation and so on but everyone is still pulling in that same direction with the same goal um there's there's this document out there called the global exploration roadmap which is a, a real single vision for for where the space agencies all around the world are going and and the joy of that document and the group that um puts it together is the international space exploration coordination group i think it's called ISIP. it's worth looking up because it's not just america russia Canada, Europe, the International Space Station partners. It has China involved. It has the United Arab Emirates. It has Korea. It has people from all around the world. And, and it's it's growing. And yeah, you're seeing how space is becoming more and more global and, and fostering that collaboration and, and coordination. And uh, yeah, it, it's politics is always going to be there but but that to have that single goal to have everyone looking at that is 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 a lovely thing particularly at the minute in this kind of world and that we're living in and you've been working uh in the arena of space flight for for a while now so you must have had some amazing moments or experiences is there anything particularly historic or important personally to you um that you remember Oh, so, so many things. I I still can't believe I have been lucky enough to, to, to forge a career in this thing that I was so interested in growing up. Um, and how that happened and it is, is a, a story in itself, but I think it was because somewhere along the line, I, I, I learned just to do the things I enjoy and my parents must've brought me up that way. But the, um, there have been many, many special moments. Um, one of them I will never forget was um, being in the Science Museum uh, the day that Tim Peake blasted off into space. And uh, I, I was involved in that mission uh, and the Science Museum was full, filled with about 3,000 screaming children. And, and just to, to, to see how far we've come from Helen Sharman's flight um, – which is in the book, um, all the way through to Tim Peake going into space, to, to being there, to seeing the, the the excitement on so many people's faces was was really an, an evening I'll never forget. And then the highlight of that, that I still look back and go, really, really? I ended up um, having to, to, I did an interview on the balcony with sort of for what was going on that evening with Helen Sharman. And it was me and Helen Sharman commentating on Tim Peake arriving at the space station. And I kind of, I, I look around and go, how did I get here? How, how was I the person that um, 
I'm yeah, I'm talking to Helen and and, and Tim and and how did I end up having this career and and having yeah, being privileged enough to to work in something that I have enjoyed, and and my message to anyone and I hope it comes across in the book still, um, and in in my other book as well. But it's it's whenever people ask me how can I do things, what do I do? It's do things you enjoy because people do them. What you'll do them well, you you'll enjoy your job, and don't be afraid to have the mad crazy dreams because then you know then you go find something that you go. How did I end up doing this? And it's because you do things you enjoy. And I think that is a wonderful note to end this podcast on. So Libby, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us. Um, That's been, I'm certainly excited uh, about the future and uh, learning all about uh, humanity's exploration into space. Um, So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Bateman and Ben Hewitt. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Spotify.